Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hey everyone, Ben Keedy here with the Wealth Crypto Podcast, and I've got our first episode of 2024. Took a good long break for the holidays and the new year to do some planning and sort of reset, but excited to get back to doing episodes. My first guest this year is Gabriella Coos. She is essentially a public policy person for financial services. She has done a ton across her career in a variety of uh, essentially kind of global financial services, public policy work, um, and ultimately it led, it led her into crypto as well, too. So this is a fascinating conversation, particularly from the regulatory policy side of things. So hope you enjoy. Thanks. Cool. And we're live. Gabby, thanks for coming. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe just briefly give a brief overview of you and your background, how you got into crypto, and we can uh, go from there. Perfect. Um, so, Gabriella Coos, um, I currently act as an advisor for TCS, which is Transportation Trade Finance, settled by the blockchain. Um, I also am a senior fellow over at AI2030. I sit on the boards of the Association for Women in Cryptocurrency and the advisory boards of the Anti-Human Trafficking Transparency Initiative. Um, I'm active in the Government Blockchain Association um, and several other (laughs) tangential. I'm an advisor to Valmar Capital, um, an asset management platform. Um, So yeah, lots of different things, but all in the blockchain and digital asset space, as well as edge technology space. And really excited to be here and have a chance to chat about all of what I'm doing and how it, in many ways, interrelates. <laughs> yeah, I will, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to sort of pick at there for sure. Um, maybe, shoot, I mean, let's just, let's just go with the easy one. Maybe just uh, how do you get here, right? So you've got all these, all these things up in the air. What, I guess, is your sort of founding story about how you ended up you know, as a leader in crypto, like where, where does that come from? (laughs) Sure. Um, so I actually had been very heavily involved for most of my career in international economic and financial sector development. So, um, I was a person who worked very much in emerging economies. So Latin America and Caribbean, um, Europe and Central Asia, Middle East and North Africa in particular. And, you know, what I focused mostly on was advancing an established industry in emerging economies. So I focused on the development of an enabling environment for financial reporting, accounting and auditing, and the foundations of a capital market system. Um, So really, crypto uh, was very much the inverse of that. So instead of being in an established (laughs) industry, an emerging economy, it was an emerging industry and an established economy. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I did really falls under the umbrella of economic transformations. So creating foundations, um, educating people, um, building capacity with regulators and legislators. And so it all kind of fit together very naturally 
in the development of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association, which I co-founded, um, you know, served as a board member on, and then eventually the CEO before I left. Um, so yeah, um, you know, I was a big fan of industry self-organizations, self-policing, and self-regulation, and so that was a lot of the focus of my work there. Um, and that's kind of how I've gotten into all of this. Hmm. Uh, sorry, it seems like we're glitching out just a tad here for some reason, but um, hopefully this will record okay. But one thing I, I did hear that uh, I kind of wanted to pull on a little bit is you talked about like economic transformation of like these various economies. Where what is like I guess um, what is like the current state of play for governments and crypto and blockchain and what they think of it and where you know they think it can be applied. Right. Like mm -hmm. obviously in the US, we have somewhat of a partisan conflicted view of what crypto air quotes looks like. Um, one specific use case I talked a lot about on the podcast last year with guests was uh, exporting US treasuries as uh, stable coins, right? And preserving purchasing power in emerging markets too. So um, I don't know. I'd just be curious to know, like, kind of what you think is the state of play for crypto and also regulators and government? Sure. So I think the state of play is, you know, very different outside the U.S. than it is in the U.S. Um, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. So you're going to see countries that need to have transparency, accountability, instantaneous settlement, lower fees, um, especially for finance um, and for banking, that there is a natural um, affinity towards blockchain and towards digital assets as a solution. I think when you have a higher degree of severity of a challenge, like around financial inclusion, unbanked, underbanked, you are more open to alternatives and to alternative solutions. And those alternative solutions include leveraging um, some of that emerging technology around blockchain and digital assets. I think um, if I'm looking at legal and regulatory approaches, there's definitely some jurisdictions that are further ahead than others. Um, but I always kind of caution and just kind of say, just because somebody's ahead in the moment doesn't mean that that's sort of the approach that'll win out overall. Um, I think that if I'm looking at countries that are taking very strong strides, I've actually been following very heavily, um, you know, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so in particular, I'm actually going to be traveling there in two weeks um, for their big leap conference, um, which is their big fintech and tech fest, which covers AI, it covers crypto, digital assets. Um, there's been a lot of movement there around positive opening, um, the development of an enabling environment, um, as well as VC funding. Um, so I think those three kind of components, which were pretty crucial towards the development of the industry here in the United States just a few years back, so legal and regulatory openness, VC funding, and then um, you know, high capacity and interest and support for the industry um, among civil society as well as regulators and um, others. I think you're seeing that there, and I think that that's a very interesting jurisdiction to keep watching. Um, I also flagged Japan and the UK 
in part because we've had a lot of air getting sucked out of the room, and I'm totally stealing that from a conversation I had earlier today um, by EU Micah. But I think that sometimes when that happens, there's some really cool, um, what, you know, sometimes stocks get undervalued, so do jurisdictions. And I think there's a few jurisdictions that are really making some big strides that are not getting as visible or as much attention as they should be. And those include Japan. Um, you know, they've been making a lot of important movements. I've continuously been very interested in Nigeria. Um, the central bank had a recent circular that really opened up um, sort of the next wave of opportunity for building legal and regulatory clarity there, so I'll flag that. South Africa, in terms of their openness to have open industry conversation between regulators and industry leaders for DeFi and DeFi regulation, which I think is very exciting. Um, that's sort of the next wave of what's going to need to be approached. And then, you know, I always kind of say, too, UK post-Brexit needs to prove itself. It needs to justify why there was this, you know, separation from the European Union. What better way to do that than to reposition as a global financial center of excellence, differentiating based on legal and regulatory approaches, offering perhaps more advantageous tax perspective, um, greater governmental support, um, in comparison to the recently passed EU MICA. So I think those are a few jurisdictions that I'm flagging, especially given you know my background and interest area, which is more in um, some of the more institutional applications for digital assets. And I think those are you know jurisdictions that I would strongly encourage others that have that institutional approach to be considering. Yeah, um, man, there's a lot there. <laughs> Um, I know, it's great. I talk a lot. Uh, <laughs> when I, no, 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 it's great. Um, what I was kind of thinking about as you were raising all these points is just um, how, like, how different all these places are, right? So you've got, you know, developed economies, emerging economies all over the globe. Probably, I'm assuming, approaching it for a variety of different use cases. Um, what do you kind of notice? Like, it do it, is are governments kind of being pushed into this, or are they being pulled into it? Like, is it driven by sort of populations and necessity and innovation? Like, or is it just kind of like a hodgepodge of, you know, they like it, they're curious, their populations pushing it. Like, what what do you kind of see as far as this sort of global? trend towards sure. um, so I think you know just DeFi. to give some insight on that you know I kind of like to use the phrase everything all at once all at the same time happening yeah. all together right um, and I say that because I think there were epics in history where you had different periods of financial or economic transformation but they happened very much you know within a given region okay um, you know, if you look at like big waves of transformation, so looking at things like the Industrial Revolution, the world wasn't quite as global then, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Now information travels extremely fast. Um, we are more interconnected than ever in terms of global trade, trade finance. I think when we talk about the speed with which transformations can take place, you're not seeing the lag between one region or another or one country or another. So that lack of lag also means that there's not necessarily an example out there that 
can come back and say, well, this is what has happened over the past 10 years, country X, Y, or Z, that is now thinking about how to regulate um, or legislate around digital assets, okay? And so that's sort of the model that we had, just to be clear, for like financial reporting, okay? Um, and so what would happen is a country would move forward, they would be about a decade out from the next one coming up, we would have all these lessons learned about what went right, what went wrong, and how we could, as the World Bank or consulting firms, you know, help countries and help companies that are publicly listed or leading in that country to really foster a constructive transformation, right? We'd say, this is what country X did, this is what country Y did, this is what works, this is what didn't. When you're having countries going forward and being sort of the first movers, and you're only having like a lag behind of maybe six months or a year, um, maybe two years at most, what you're finding is that there's not a whole lot that you can carry back in terms of lessons learned. And so that's why everybody's kind of on this strange, <laughs> like same yeah. plane of having Feeling to around in the dark. <laughs> go together, right? And you know, it means that you have to communicate so much faster, share lessons learned, is this what's happening? And you don't have the luxury of time to really judge from like a historical point of view, whether something's a certain intervention, a certain piece of legislation was successful or not, was harmful or not, were there any unintended consequences? Um, so I think that piece of it, it's like nobody's really ahead or behind. And if they are, it's only by a matter of years, which does make a difference in a rapidly moving industry like crypto and digital assets. But at the same time, um, it's not that far, right? Um, so. That makes it very challenging from a standpoint of using peer benchmark countries to be able to inform some of the decisions that are being made at a national level for other countries. And it also makes it difficult because um, what I would say is that that 10-year gap that usually would happen, that would allow us to work with, and by us again, international development organizations, consultants, to work with lower resourced countries so that they don't fall into common mistakes, right? Yeah. Or so that they would be able to use whatever limited resources they have and put them towards their best purpose, okay? When you don't have those lessons learned, it becomes very difficult to advise a country on what, you know, what blockchain to build on if they want to build a CBDC or, um, you know, how to move forward with regards to legislation that um, facilitates economic growth and opportunity, but also protects consumers because we haven't seen how that balance acts in practice, okay? Because until you actually have about a good 10-year period, everything's very theoretical, okay? Um, and, you know, theory is great, um, but ultimately it's just theory and it's wrong most of the time because life is complicated, right? So we can have the best laid plans, you know, economists come forward, they say, this is what's going to happen. And you're like, oh, <laughs> it's yeah, funny, I... it's not happen at all. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's things that you try to do, right? So best practices with regards to emerging technology, emerging country capacity building, how are we going to overcome some of these general problems so that we can help to hone in and focus on those very specific problems that we know are related to blockchain or digital assets themselves. And so that's been sort of, you know, my approach in some of the roles that I've had when it comes to either transformation at a corporate level or transformation at a national level, right? And trying to advise people um, in the middle of a 
um, thunderstorm turn like Sharknado basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll try to try to focus, try to move forward, one foot in front of the other, and we'll just keep going like that until we get to a point where some of this starts to, and it has already. Um, I think the industry itself is starting to mature a little bit, and once you have that maturation of technology, the maturation of players, in all honesty, some of the consolidation of players. Um, the elimination of some of like the erroneous options for you know selecting to build or grow on i think it becomes a little bit more stable and then that stability you can create more um fully baked um legal and regulatory regimes as opposed to having to be more iterative okay which is very hard for formal laws and for formal regulations but you know, that's why you're seeing countries that have, I think, a higher degree of flexibility. And quite honestly, what I'm seeing is that those countries that just recently emerged from broader economic and financial sector transformations are performing better because they they already have that culture of transformation and they haven't had to go through this. Like you see the United States or you see the UK or Europe that, you know, Western Europe, that's having a lot of difficulty. And it's because quite honestly, those muscles for like transformation, they haven't been used in a while. Like, yeah, electronic trading, but that didn't really transform the entire yeah. economy or transform every industry. <laughs> I think... You know, when you see blockchain and digital assets, you're seeing a lot of the flexible, nimble, you know, more um, recently adjusted to the need to move quickly and to transform. That um, readiness, that experience, and that muscle memory, really, quite honestly, that those regulators have, it's coming into play and it's turning out to be quite an advantage. And that's why you're seeing, I think, the Singapores, the Dubais, you know, being first movers, being able to adapt easily, being able to move forward quickly and, you know, really starting to take the lead here. I've got so question about that because you definitely hear like I've talked to a number of global people in crypto and they're kind of in these hot spots that you mentioned. Do you I mean, I guess in your experience, do you see like like a space race to kind of be the best at this particular aspect of the new f financial services system? Like, uh, do you see sort of yeah, money, I, I do talent, see a bit of a resources like a, moving. Yeah, and I mean, I do see some of a you know a little bit of a space race. I don't disagree with that, and I've actually like used that very analogy um, before to describe some of this. So I, yeah. I don't agree with that. Um, I do think that there will be jurisdictions that move first if they're able to keep up and flexibly continue to amend, adjust, and be iterative. They won't necessarily fall behind and their legal and regulatory frameworks won't be obsolete um, by the time this technology and its application begins to truly mature, right? So that means that they have to continuously be updating. And you've already heard some of that coming out of um, some of the regulators that they're like, well, even with EU MICA, they're like, this isn't the last. <laughs> We're going to have another round. We're going to continue yeah. to kind of like revisit and ensure that it stays on pace with the pace of, you know, change in the industry. But also, I think what they're not admitting to is that they're going to continue to monitor some of what may be some of the unintended consequences. And sure. that's just good practice, quite honestly. So I think, you know, I've had some people come to me and be like, well, 
is, doesn't that mean that this isn't good legislation? I'm like, no, it means that it's intelligent, informed regulators who understand that they're regulating a moving ball, right? So it's going to change, and they need to change, too, in order to stay relevant and to ultimately fulfill their mandate as regulators, right? So, so, to, so to maybe pull this back to the U.S., I do you feel like there are lessons that our regulators could have learned that um, that maybe would have presented some of like the crypto winner frauds that we saw? Like, mm, I think you, it's, it's all about regulatory approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in a lot of different countries, 56 of them. Um, this country is highly litigious and it's regulated, it's regulators are run by lawyers, right? In other countries, yeah, there's lawyers, but they're mostly civil servants who have risen through the ranks. They're not political appointees, okay? Their goal is to regulate the financial sectors. They're not looking to get, like, talking points on TV. In fact, like, they'd prefer probably not to be very people. (laughs) Okay? Like, they're they're dorky regulators, and God bless them, right? Like, that's what they should be. Um, Their job should be to do their job um, to... Either whether it's an explicit mandate or an implicit mandate, they always should be balancing um, consumer protection and, you know, capital markets efficiency and effectiveness um, with the fact that they have this either explicit or implicit mandate to also grow the economy, right? Um, As I always like to say, you know, there's no such thing as like 100% regulation, right? If you were going to be like, if you had no mandate whatsoever, implicit or explicit, for economic growth, then you would always ban everything all the time, always, because then everyone would be 100% protected, right? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Nobody's mandate yeah. is that. So even if you want to disagree that you have as part of your mandate economic growth, I will turn to you and say you 100% do because you allow there to be some risk that exists because... you care that the capital markets are healthy, grow, and the economy grows, right? So, you know, by virtue of that, I think every country is a little bit different. Most countries, I think, understand, and because they're challenger countries, value and have maybe more of a 50-50 balance or a 70-30 balance. They're not doing a 95-5 balance with regards to protection versus economic growth and development. And I think that, you know, it was, to me, very strange, having worked in a lot of different countries, to see our regulators behaving very much in line with how emerging economy regulators were behaving, clamping it down, shutting it off. And I think that that's just, I don't know, it's a very antiquated mode of regulation. I think intelligent regulation would say that you should cultivate a relationship with the underlying industry that you're regulating so that you have an informed approach to how you would regulate this. You have information and intelligence that allows you to better design a regulatory system. And ultimately, you also have perspective on what is and is not proper behavior, um, whether that be ethical or technical standards or, you know, financial markets, legal and regulatory applications. Where, so with all that in mind, um, you know, complexities of regulating at scale so quickly, um, different preferences, different regulators, different philosophies, all all these things. What, uh, 
what, what do you see as like the major themes for regulation and sort of global crypto adoption, digital asset adoption going forward? Like what are, I guess, some of the hot topics you kind of see for 2024? Yeah. Well, um, if you're looking in the U.S. and even in other jurisdictions, you're looking at stablecoin regulation. I think that's going to be sort of the next yeah. piece. Um, I think you've already started to see some of the interest around broader tokenization. So um, this is your real world assets, RWA. Um, so, um, tokenization. I know I always hear that. I'm like, oh, um, yeah. Um, so yeah. So I feel like your your real world asset tokenization. Don't laugh. It's true. Yeah. You do it too. Um, it it kind of goes through your you know mind. I think you know these are two of the core issues that are going to come to play. Um, do I think the U.S. is going to have a holistic approach to legal and regulatory for digital assets this year? No. I don't think it's going to be until after the election. Now. Um, and that's a shame. I think it is. It's a missed opportunity. And yeah. you know, I, people can blame and point fingers, but everybody had a, had a role to play in that. And I think that that's what's shameful. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, where things are going, um, you know, other than that, I think you're starting to see the early kind of steps, like I said, by South Africa, really kind of being intentional, engaging with industry, being thoughtful about how you would quote unquote regulate um, DeFi so that it can flourish. Because right now, part of the reason that it's having trouble pulling resources in is in part because there's not a whole lot of clarity about what that looks like. And I think that there are opportunities for that to continue to grow. Um, but again, it's going to have the same like cutting teeth issues as, you know, regular digital assets or like digital assets generally, um, unless we start to take lessons learned and really move forward proactively. Do, think, yeah, go do, ahead. Uh, do, about, about the DeFi piece, because I find that really interesting, because generally governments would prefer to have centralized control for compliance and, um, you know, monitoring and all the various things the government would want to sort of see, which would apparently inherently conflict maybe with DeFi. Um, is there an incentive for governments to kind of consider DeFi? Um, can, can, like, can you marry like a government's sort of preferences for control inside mon monitoring with what the nature of a DeFi protocol may be? Well, I mean, I think it depends. I think you're talking about very established. I'm looking at the fact that there is a lot of failed states that exist in this world, that you have countries that, you know, basically they have a currency, kind of. Um, you know, I think sometimes when we think about, you know, what this looks like in terms of adoption and implementation, we tend to, and it's totally normal. <laughs> I do it too, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but you like look at it from like, oh, I don't know, because regulators wouldn't like this. And it's like, you're right, they may not. But, you know, at the end of the day, once again, you have to balance economic stability, which quite honestly also taps into political stability. Sure. Understand that those two pieces are not disconnected. And so if I am somebody who's, you know, a leader of a country and my people can't have, you know, a basis of currency that they can exchange in order to operate and function in economic transactions, that is a destabilizing factor. And so I may look at, you know, a holistic picture of 
what is it that I need to control and to oversee in order to kind of shepherd my country forward? Is it a tight clamp down on monetary policy if my currency, you know, is very volatile and hyperinflationary? Um, is that really my biggest concern right now? I don't know. But I think, you know, some of that comes into play, I think, when we look at this because, again, you know, we're used to a very... Um, divided regulatory environment. We're not a unified regulator that oversees our financial sector. But even more than that, I think we have these silos that kind of oversee leadership of the government and not this, I think, more um, organized and uh, functional, let's just say, um, model for strategic planning, for the development of transformation of the economy. You know, many countries have like a vision 2050 or you know, what's ours? I don't know. It's not there, right? It's like everything all over the place. We'll we, let the market figure it out. You're like, yeah. okay, that sounds like a yeah. bad plan. We got a vision 2024 right now. That's basically it's what like we're like a non-plan plan. We're yeah. like, we're just going to get there somehow. I don't yeah. know what it's going to be. Half the country thinks it should look like this. The other half thinks it should look like that. I don't know, man. Like, yeah. good luck. But, yeah. you know, I feel like in Management 101, they're like, what's your strategic plan? Yeah. And kind of the same discipline that you would take with shepherding a company, you kind of have to do that with a country, too. And so I feel like, you know, some of the things that we're talking about, um, yeah, if they're looked at in a silo alone and that, you know, that's the one direction you're going to take, well, that that is one part of it. But then there's all these other pieces of it, um, which I think is important. Um so I'll just kind of leave that there. But I think there are, you know, opportunities where people are starting to look at how you would support DeFi or how you would live harmoniously with it. If you are, you know, a central bank or um, if you do kind of ha come from a more controlled or centralized economy. Yeah. Um, yeah, shoot. I mean, outside of changing the nature of humanity, I don't know if we're going to be able to figure out a a long-term plan in the United States, at least. Um, hmm. I just, I keep coming back to it just being, I think, so interesting. Your point earlier about, like, the pace of innovation and connectivity and just, like, all this is happening so fast that you just kind of have to respond in real time as best you can. Um, I, I think that's a great insight. It's something that I honestly hadn't considered, and and I guess maybe to kind of unpack your background a little bit more, um, you know, we haven't even talked about what AI and deepfakes and machine learning and all this stuff is going to look like, too. I, I don't know if you have any um, thoughts on sort of the, all these technologies coming together almost at, like, the exact opportune time. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, well... There's a lot of opportunities, but also risks. I just did a big podcast um, not that long ago with Everyday AI, where we talked about like governance in AI, right? So I always kind of go back to, everybody likes to think that it's the flashy thing, and it's always like these horribly boring fundamentals, <laughs> which I like majored in and like love, and you know, so accounting, governance, like it's, it's crucially important. Um, yeah, you can go off and build some amazing stuff, but if it like destroys the world, it's pretty uncool, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, um, I'm just going to be real blunt. <laughs> so yeah. 
You know, looking at how you will create standards that, you know, help to guide the constructive development of this um, technology in a way that helps humanity, that helps global economy, that helps global financial markets, right? That's going to be critically important. Um, And so when I look at sort of what the next wave is, I think if you want to guide the next wave, then you have to be part of the standard setting conversation. You have to be part of, you know, the discussion around what ethical or moral bounds will sort of help to guide the development of this technology. And it's not meant to, like, shut things down or to, um, you know, discourage, I think, experimentation. It's really meant to ensure that experimentation actually goes towards a better common good as opposed to the lowest common denominators, right? And it will be used, let's be clear, on all of those planes. But the goal, I think, at its core is to try to support that you know, next wave of innovation in a way that really does bring about positive collateral impacts, right? Do uh, when so like when you are having these conversations with people, do you do you know are people receptive to like the idea of like governments or governance and standards and um, sort of responsibility, or do you kind of feel like to use the space race analogy again? Everyone is just moving so fast to a goal that um, that you know thoughtful planning and consideration is just never going to happen like how, how no do you- i think you know ultimately people are very receptive about it i think you know look companies okay will be some of the first that will experiment with ai and its application and the truth is that they don't want any unintended consequences and so their focus will be initially on risk management um and so i think from that standpoint they would like especially in highly litigious societies, something to backstop them and to say, but we did it according to this, right? Um, So I kind of feel like, you know, when people are like, well, standard setting is very boring and governance is boring. I'm like, not for lawyers, not for insurance companies, and also not for people who could be held liable. For them, it's very exciting and important. Um, So I think, you know, when we look at some of this, like, yes, technically is standard setting, you know, something that you're going to do on a Friday night with all your friends around the table? Probably not. No, you know, I would also encourage you to do it highly sober, right? It's better that way. (laughs) Um, But I will say this, right? Um, It's the thing that matters. It really is. Um, When you look at kind of some of these decentralized um, communities that are building, at the end of the day, you're never going to have like I don't know, a billion regulators and regulatory staff to crack down on every possible thing. So the truth is that all you can do, if that's the case, is to help build a constructive community that sort of in some ways self-polices and in other ways helps to guide, you know, good intentioned participants Um, on a path towards building constructively, right? And there's always going to be bad players. Even in highly regulated, centralized environments, we still have people who break rules, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't have as your objective zero errors, right? Which is, I think, the false, um, you know, dichotomy that people have put up between TradFi and decentralized finance. Like, the truth is that 
crimes, frauds, um, you know, fines for AMLKYC you know, uh, violations, they still happen in traditional finance, right? But we don't shut traditional finance down, okay? Because that would be ridiculous. It's the same thing here. Things have evolved. We need to evolve our tools and methods for the impact that you're trying to have. What we've had are a lot of, um, and it's true, especially with low um, capacity regulators, we create things like templates, forms, right? Because that's something mm -hmm. easy to check the box. That's process-oriented, okay? Yeah. If I fill out this form and do this, I no longer have, I, I can't be held liable anymore. But it yeah. doesn't matter. You're not measuring at the end of the day if any of the things that you're trying to stop actually reduced, right? So you need to move, and this is true of a lot of things, not just, you know, uh, DeFi regulation and digital asset regulation away from what we call outputs, which is I did, I checked this box, I wrote this form, I submitted this thing, to outcomes and impacts. What was the outcome of this? What was the impact of this? If I do this, is it actually effective? And just because I did this doesn't mean this is the only way you can you know, ensure that you minimize terrorism financing or minimize money laundering, right? There may be much more effective ways to do that with the technology that we have today um, based on the fact that the system is now changing. It's more blockchain-based. You know, you could have regulators that have a node that are part of the ecosystem themselves who are in real time understanding what some of these flows are. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to sort of reimagine what it means to regulate. And at the core of that, you need to think about it from this impact and outcome perspective. What is the process and procedure then that should exist in order to ensure that you're getting that same impact or outcome? So not same process applied for TradFi, DeFi, but same impact outcome, because that will be a completely different process, so to speak. And it may be something that is much less around you know, regulating and coming after someone, so being reactive, and yeah. much more about being proactive and building a healthy community from the very beginning, right? That, I mean, that sounds like a very, very tall order. Um, oh, it is. Like when I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like when, when I'm thinking about that, um, I, I, I'm just wondering, like, practically, like, can you find people who can design a system with the correct incentives to regulate in a proactive way, right? Yeah. Um, what does that look like? What do you give up? What do you gain? Um, I mean, one of the one of the scary things I think about CBDCs for me is the idea of programmability around money and like where does the line stop, right? Like if you don't pay your taxes or you're late on your taxes. Does the government get to garnish your wallet and your paychecks and, like, just siphon money back until you're caught up? Um, or maybe even more scary, like, what if you're overweight and somehow that's tied into your health insurance and then all of a sudden you can't, like, go buy a soda at In-N-Out or something? Like, so, in theory, like... I, I tend to view the world as like there somebody who said somebody said this. There's there's no consequences, there's only trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. So like what are the trade-offs that we're willing to make for what? Um, and I guess I mean I at least personally have not seen um, 
sort of the trade-off debate, uh, at least, I don't know, maybe you can direct me to it, but um, I, I, I just don't know if we have an idea of what we really want, I guess, right, out of what the system could be. So uh, it's kind of tough to make policy in that sort of void, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it does. I think, you know, when you talk about transforming legal and regulatory environments, like those are things that, you know, again, it's not like the a person off the street who's going to be like, yeah, I do that all the time. Let me jump yeah. in there. <laughs> However, to be clear, like, that's what I did. That's what a lot of people at the World Bank and the IMF do. Like, their whole purpose is to help economies transform. Um, so the level that, you know, they're operating at, that's something that they do on a, on a daily basis with regulators. So, you know, training, building capacity, building governance institutions, you know, that's very normal. Um, creating a new form of regulator, you know, the world did that in financial reporting not that long ago. Um, we did it with the creation of independent audit regulators. You know, that was sort of a newbie idea that came out of the US PCAOB. It got, you know, embodied into the EU Eighth Directive. Um, and then, you know, you saw all over the world U- UK FRC, so Financial Reporting Council esque regulators popping up. I was one of the people that helped put those together. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Fun fact. Shout out yeah. to me. There um, you go. But so, like, yeah, there's lots of different ways to build regulators. I think sometimes, like, we see what we have in the U.S., but you have to understand that, like, outside of the U.S., we have a very strange regulatory model. Most countries have, like, a unified capital markets authority that oversees commodities and securities, so they can just not deal with this whole commodity versus security nonsense. They yeah, can move yeah. forward, right? So that's part of the reason why you're seeing some of them move. Um like I said, the other pieces are the balance between economic development and, you know, regulatory enforcement. That balance is always there, whether explicit or implicit. So depending on where they line and you're going to see, like I said, middle income countries, lower income countries, that push for economic development is going to be much greater than the push for regulatory enforcement, right? Um, and that's very natural and normal. And, you know, given the depth of our capital markets, it's normal for us to also be more conservative about that, right? Um, so that's going to push some of the pace. But the need to change the way that we regulate, that's coming one way or another. And mark my words, you can come back to this like 10 years from now and people will be like, oh, my God, we have to change the way we regulate. <laughs> You'll be yeah. like, I told you, but nobody yeah. listens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, you, you can't. Like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. These aren't centralized entities. They're going to continue to grow and develop. And the truth is that your job isn't to shut things down. You like as a regulator, your job is to also evolve and grow and develop and to find new and innovative ways to fulfill your mandate. And if you're not doing doing that, then you're not doing your job. That's quite honest, you know? And I think sometimes when we think about that, though, and here's where the unfun part comes in, where we point the finger back at us, um, it's not just your job. You know, we're part of a democracy, and a democracy has a vibrant civil society, and that means industry oh, groups... we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we don't no. do that anymore. <laughs> Sorry, you know, if you want your regulators to grow and develop, you have to also engage in a conversation constructive. Yeah. You have to work to build their capacity and not undermine and defund them. And then when they don't have the funds to actually do the job and now they're just going to shut you down, get angry. 
Like, you know, I'm sorry, you're part of a society, you pay taxes, the taxes go to support things like your regulators. And when your regulators don't have the resources and can't upskill or acquire the technology they need, then don't be surprised when they use rudimentary tools to regulate you. Is Have you given much thought to, I guess, kind of this hyper-partisan moment that we live in where... You know, maybe say it's like the IRS, right? There's all this funding for the IRS and new agents, and everyone's got an opinion about it. Is there a way to kind of marry regulation and, uh, you know, the technology and uh, like a like a true, I don't know, arbiter, so that the rules are applied consistently? I feel like people. I think we see a lot of examples of this in society where rules don't apply to one group, but they do apply to another group. Is there a way to get, I guess, the human component and emotionality out of regulation so that it's it all truly goes back to just being fair as the letter of the law is written? Like, is have you given much thought to how that could maybe come together? Mm-hmm. Well, I think a few things. Like, one, the letter of the law is always interpreted, right? Yeah. So you could be a strict constructionist or you could be a more liberal approach to interpreting the law, but... It's never just, this is the law, so we're going to do it. It's like, this is the law, and now it goes into the hands of a human being. Yeah. <laughs> he has to apply the law. And so then that's when it gets messy, right? Um, so what I, I've worked in a lot of countries that have had challenges um, with regards to unequal application of the law, meaning that there are certain groups, um, you know, for whatever reason, that sure. exempt, Right. The that's, only thing that's a good way to, to say I know. It. I'm so diplomatic. That's a, that's a very well, lawyerly... Well, uh, it's very... Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Like certain groups, that for whatever reason... They're exempt from <laughs> all laws. Oh, my God. the law. Yeah. yeah. We won't get well, into who those people are or no, why. Nonetheless. No. <laughs> um, look, the only thing that actually solves that is transparency because what you're really yeah. talking about is corruption. Yeah. Um, you know, we can call it all sorts of things. Like some people don't, or they have better lawyers or it's corruption. Let's call yeah. it the big C, right? Yeah. Um, how do you get out of that? It's transparency. And I yeah. think that blockchain offers a lot for that, but I'm going to tell you a fun fact, which is that if you really had wanted to cure all like corruption through transparency in this, you know, we've had initiatives like that. OpenGov, um, mm-hmm. you know, there have been the problem is that there are entrenched interest groups which push back on that level of oh, yeah. transparency. And in fact, yeah. many governments, including our own, which hasn't had audited financial statements <laughs> for many years now. Come on, um, I heard the Pentagon's finally gonna pass this year. I think yeah. they got it. <laughs> So, I mean, look, you know, and there are reasons for that, you know, and sure. some of yeah. this is Okay. Um, but the truth is that if you want there to be greater equity in some of the application, then it's greater transparency and information. Okay. And the problem with that is that even today, because you have misinformation, disinformation campaigns, um, manipulation of media, the reality is that it now has become very difficult for people to discern reality from, um, you know, falsehood, okay? And so when you try to be transparent about some of this, even if it's 100% true, people still are skeptical of that. And so I think there needs to be almost like a reboot around, you know, talking about, like, I always laugh because I I go back to this. And I remember um, 
partially because I'm kind of old, but when we were like in school, like you're kind of my age. Yeah, I think. Anyway, um, <laughs> when we were in school. <laughs> How old do you think I am? <laughs> I know that beard does good things for you. Um, yeah. Do you remember like being in school and going to like library class or something? Oh, yeah. And the, the teachers would be like, or librarians, whatever, computer class girls, like whatever. Yeah. They would be like, consider the source, right? Like consider yeah. the source of the information you're getting. Is that source somewhat biased? Is that source credible to be relied upon for like independent information? If it's some rando who's on a Reddit, like maybe we need to be a little bit more, a little bit more discerning about whether that's information we rely upon when we move forward and make and form our own dis opinions on things, right? And I yeah. think too, like, I mean, it's not always the most fun, but I think you need to look at um, different angles of an issue or a challenge. I mean, people laugh at me because I listen to like, you know, both sides and I'm not going to name anything again, you know, but sure. both sides of an argument on different competing, perhaps spectrums of news. Um, when it comes to like making a, a personal decision about how I feel about XYZ issue or this issue. And the truth is that almost always neither side is right. The yeah. truth is always in the middle, okay? Some of what these people are saying is true. Some of what these people are saying is true. And even if they're both very credible sources, it's always a little bit tainted, not because people are intentional, but because they're human. And the truth is that even AI or other technologies, it will always be biased because at the beginning of it, it was created by a human. And those biases come through. Yeah. And what's to say that you know artificial intelligence is any better than actual intelligence? And that it too won't have its own weird robotic biases, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes when we like go down this rabbit hole, we're like, oh, humans are awful and they have biases and they, I'm like, yeah, so is the world. Like find yeah, me yeah. something that's truly perfect because nothing is, okay? That's... We're all just doing the best we can trying to move forward. And sometimes, you know, we always have an international development saying is that we don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And yeah. You're never going to get a zero percent of anything, uh, you know, a zero rate on corruption, a zero rate on misuse of funds, a zero rate um, on fraud. But what you can do is try to create a system that minimizes those incidences and helps give assurance, reasonable assurance to people that the information that they're relying upon can truly be relied upon when it comes to investment decisions or election decisions. Right. Yeah. You uh one theme I think throughout this whole thing is um, civic experience and just kind of being a part of the process, which I think most people in the U.S., at least from what I observe, are not thinking that way, right? Um, do you think that there is maybe an opportunity or like a necessity to have sort of civic service as a part of our citizenship and our responsibilities so that, you know, maybe we are exposed to more people, more ideas, more thoughts about the world. Because um, to me, like, it seems like what, what I'm hearing is like, you got to be a better person and be more thoughtful and reasonable. But no one is thoughtful and reasonable in these days where everyone lives in their own little world and reality. So, um, again, another big sort of thing to address. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, we've gone way off of digital assets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Compulsory civil service. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't 
true. Um, you know, I, um, I used to sit on the board of the Illinois Center for Civic Education. Um, so I am actually a really strong proponent of civic education generally. Um, I think it's important for people to understand the foundations of democracy. And I think maybe I have a different viewpoint on it because I've actually worked in countries where I've seen it erode firsthand, right? And I know the like the milestone markers of what it looks like when it's going down. And I think that those are things that are upsetting to see. And I think, you know, um, the degradation of governance institutions, the lack of ability to determine what is fact from fiction, mm-hmm. the um, lack of confidence in, you know, democratically elected leadership, those types of things are, I know that people probably think it's, um, just regular old politicking and mudslinging, but those things are very dangerous to 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 promote, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that I wish they understood how dangerous that was. That's what I think. And I, for people generally, um, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would support compulsory civil service because I think that. I would actually support enabling measures that would enhance the level of volunteerism in civic participation. And yeah. the truth is that that could take a lot of different forms. Sometimes people get angry because they see protesters in the street. And I always remind them that there's lots of countries where you would never see that. And actually, yeah. that's the sign of a very healthy democracy. It's only when people go outside of what are you know these pressure gaps or channels that actually facilitate um, constructive conversation or believe that the system doesn't work for them anymore and there's no reasonable outlets. That's, I think, scarier. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's not to say that... I don't know know how you tone down the sort of volume, right? Like, um, all this makes sense to me, but it seems like we're just in the spot where everyone likes to scream at each other from both sides and toning turning down the volume particularly this year is going to be pretty difficult so um but i think you brought up a good point about like uh being able to trust the winner of an election and just know that like no funny business happened like the fact that whether it is left or right now that we're on this like track of challenging elections every cycle like that's not a positive way to go um I think just to kind of point something out, like you've mentioned that, you know, you don't see how you would turn down the volume, but some of that maybe it's, look, you've never lived in a country where the volume was turned all the way up and then it had to come down. Right. And look, yay for you for never having (laughs) to deal with that. That's awesome (laughs) in some ways. Um, But there's lots of examples of how to turn down the volume. I think people just aren't willing. And sometimes, you know, like, look, I've worked in established countries. I've worked in middle-income countries. I've worked in, you know, emerging economies. Um, established economies tend to think that they can't learn from anybody other than themselves or other established countries. And, you know, sometimes that leadership is good, but other times it's a giant blind spot, especially when you're dealing with something that many other countries have had decades of experience with, right? And so, you know, I think 
Like, I always go back to, like, the basics. Look at peer benchmark countries, see how they've turned down the volume, how have they reinvigorated civil society, how have they, you know, helped to build out some of these components of what we call, like, the foundations and bedrock um, of economic growth and, you know, social justice or progress. Um, and you kind of go back to that. Whatever you believe those things are, economic prosperity, you may have very different views on it, but it's a democracy, so you should be allowed to build in accordance with that viewpoint, and that should be recognized and respected. Um, so I think that you know there are definitely ways to move forward on some of these issues. It's just the willingness to admit that there's a problem and that somebody else may be able to help you solve it better than yourselves alone. Yeah. Well, maybe let's put a pause on it there. That's a very positive way to... <laughs> And a twisty turvy conversation about crypto and uh, policy and regulation <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thoughts on civil service. I'm like, wow, you're really going off base now. I mean, I'm having yeah. fun, but still, yeah. definitely drifted. <laughs> it, it's my podcast. I get to do what I want. Um, you can. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, shoot, I don't know, Gabby. Where where can people find you? Follow your work, um, your insights, uh, and then uh, LinkedIn. Podcasts like this one, which is amazing. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, you know, many companies that I advise um, and whatever comes next. Yeah. There you go. Go follow Gabby, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. Till next time, for sure. Thank you. You too. Take care. <laughs>